0: Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to thank and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hi everyone and welcome to On The House, the Household Management Science Insights Podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Gabriella Yastra, coming to you from NAM Melbourne, Australia. Let's begin. Hi everyone, and welcome back to the show. Today we're going to be talking about sustainable home landscaping. Balancing Responsible Land Use and Environmental Conservation with uh, Julie Travellini, who is the Senior Director of Education and Curriculum at Allegheny Land Trust. And this is part one of two episodes about land conservation. Next week, I'll speak to Julie's colleague, Casey Markle, um, about uniting homeowners and land trusts through conservation easements. So don't forget to check that one out as well. Uh, But hi, Julie. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Do you mind um, talking about yourself and uh, you know introducing yourself a bit more for us?
1: Yeah, absolutely. My name is Julie Travellini, and I am the senior director of education and curriculum for Allegheny Land Trust. We are actually based just outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in the U.S. Uh, so we are kind of like right on the border of the Midwest and the Northeast. So we've got some kind of interesting ecosystem happening sometimes, but uh, uh, Allegheny Land Trust is a land trust. We are a nonprofit and our whole mission is to help local people save local land. So we are helping local landowners and businesses and all sorts of folks protect land to keep a green space forever. And then we open it to the public so folks can go out and hike and bike, kayak, fish, all sorts of good stuff out on those properties. And then we also run educational events on those properties, and that's where I come in. So I am one of two educators on staff, and we run about close to 200 educational events a year on our various properties around the county, around the city of Pittsburgh. Everything from mushroom hikes to night hikes to campfire cooking classes and free webinars, community events, all sorts of stuff. So that's kind of me and Allegheny Land Trust in a nutshell.
0: Wow. I really love the idea of mushroom hunting. Um, It's mushroom season in Melbourne, but I'm really scared of um, eating anything poisonous. So uh, a lot of people like mushroom hunting. Yeah. So here in Western Pennsylvania,
1: we actually have one of the largest mushroom clubs in the country, the Western Pennsylvania Mushroom Club. I'm actually the secretary of it and an identifier for the club, which means I'm a giant mushroom nerd. Um, And I can identify at least 150 mushrooms down to species. And we take people out numerous times a month mushroom hunting uh, and just showing them identification ecology history really cool stuff like that not just the the edibility part everyone wants to know what you can eat but there's a lot of cool stuff about mushrooms
0: yeah i love that yeah they're very interesting um and i'm guessing that you know even the poisonous ones are very interesting and even though we can't eat them absolutely Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah the biology behind some of the toxins in there is like mind-blowing <laughs> oh wow okay
0: um yeah i'd love to learn about that um maybe maybe we'll have to talk about that another time but for today we are talking about um <laughs> land use um and environmental conservation. sorry environmental uh conservation but before we do do that we're going to have a section called have you met julie uh where we talk about some of your favorite <laughs> things so the first thing we'd like to know is what is your favorite book Paying a favorite
1: book is like asking a parent to pick their favorite kid. (laughs) I don't know that I could pick a favorite book. I kind of feel obligated to say my own book. I just recently, within the last couple of months, self-published my own children's book. So I feel obligated to say my own book is my favorite because it was such a labor of love. (laughs) So um, normally I love to read mystery and horror books, but I wrote a children's book called Super Skills of Backyard Bugs. Uh, So we'll go with that.
0: And I'm assuming there are no horror elements in this kid's book there are not only love for bugs (laughs) okay yeah so what's the book about other than bugs
1: it is a little book rhyming book um and it is all about the cool skills that bugs have so it talks about the strength of stag beetles it talks about how fast dragonflies fly it talks about the strength of spider webs and all sorts of different things but it is a rhyming book so it's meant for early childhood
0: Okay, that sounds that sounds really cute and adorable. Um, Thank you. And I and I, I do think that yeah, bag, bugs get a bit of a bad rep. Um, Absolutely. And yeah, love to learn a bit more about them. Um, and what about a movie you've enjoyed recently?
1: I was thinking about this just the other day, and I don't think I've been to the movie theater in probably close to ten years. <laughs> it's been what? Um, even pre-covid i'm just not a big movie person but i have watched on netflix the documentary how to change your mind about the history uh in background of like psychedelics and that's been really up again a big mushroom nerd uh so that's been really interesting to learn about just the history of it and the politics behind it and the biology chemistry it's really good stuff so i guess we'll consider that a movie (laughs)
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. That sounds very interesting. I'm also particularly interested, yeah, in the sort of psychedelic use and how you can use that in mental health. Um,
1: Absolutely. Yeah, it's yeah. really interesting. I highly recommend it and the book. There's a, it's based on the book How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan.
0: Oh, okay. I'll have to look that one up. Um, and do you listen to any podcasts? I do.
1: I'm a huge fan of the Planted podcast from the Morton Arboretum. They are based in Chicago. I was a guest on that a few years ago and one of my best friends runs it and i gotta gotta give her credit it's an awesome podcast (laughs) what's it about it's all about stem careers in environmental science so it is very career-based and you get to learn from experts in the field across a wide range of topics
0: okay interesting it's not i when you said planted i was like oh is it about like i don't know plants horticulture
1: Yeah. Well, kind of, yeah. It's called, the full name is Planted, Finding Your Roots in STEM. So it's all about how various um, STEM professionals got interested in their specific career. So it's really, really interesting
0: stuff. Yeah, that sounds good. And I think it can be a little bit, I guess, daunting to think about, you know, starting a career in STEM. So um, I think that's a really great resource. Thank you for that. Yeah, no problem. And do you have a role model?
1: I would have to say Steve Irwin. Um, I grew up watching him throughout my entire, you know, early days of teaching environmental education. And When he passed, I was in college and both my college roommate and I were studying conservation science. So it was a huge loss for us. And we actually made a whole memorial to him outside of our window. We hung it from our our dorm window and we got in the local newspapers for uh, our Steve Irwin memorial. So I would have to say Steve Irwin.
0: Mm. Yes, I think he influenced a lot of people. And yeah, I think we were all very sad when he passed, unfortunately, but I guess he was doing what he loved. It's true. Yeah, I can only imagine what it was like to be
1: an Australian and, you know, suffer that loss. It was It was hard enough being, you know,
0: tens of thousands of miles away. I, I gotta say, I wasn't actually living in uh, Australia then, and I wasn't, um, I wasn't, I didn't grow up in Australia, so I wasn't really okay. affected by it. Um, it was sort of just something that sort of happened, and everyone was like, oh, how do you feel? Because you're Australian. And I'm like, eh.
1: I don't know. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I yeah, feel like... interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have to ask my friends what they thought when it happened.
1: Yeah. Ask your, your you know, born and raised Australian friends how they felt. I'm yep. Sure. It was a yep. very different experience.
0: Mm. And um, have you completed any courses that have inspired you? Yeah, I'm always really fascinated
1: and interested in geography. I think geography is so underrated. How many times we watch the news and they're talking about a country, but how many people can point to where that country is on a map? I just find that disconnect to be mind boggling of how we don't know where other, especially here in the United States, we have the a very bad rap for not knowing where other countries are and i think geography is it's fascinating and it puts into perspective so many other subjects as well like history makes more sense and you know political science makes more sense when you have that geography background so i would say that's probably one of my even though i was a science major one of my favorite classes and one of my most valuable classes that i've ever taken
0: and i guess geography also influences You know so many things so as you said you know political um conflict um but also the environment i mean it's a huge contributor to the environment you know a rocky region versus um, a wetter region you know further away and absolutely yeah i think every environmental science major should take geography Mm, (laughs) it should be a requirement yeah. (laughs) yeah and i'm loving the um what we've learned so far about you um i think it's really setting the stage for um what we're going to be talking about—it seems to be all sort of inter-related. Inter, uh, it always is. <laughs> Environmental <laughs> science is everywhere. <laughs> mm, okay, not just outside. Okay, but we're going to start off inside with uh, your definition of household management.
1: I think I think it depends on who you ask what household management is. If you ask me, I would say one thing. But if you ask my neighbor, they might say household management has to do with cleaning and chores. But When I hear household management, I think of how I manage my entire home to be part of the ecosystem. So I want my home to be as low impact as possible on the surrounding ecosystem and I want it to fit in. So when I'm thinking of managing my house, I'm thinking of how do I best manage my space to be a a small piece of something larger.
0: Interesting. And how do you, I mean, we're going to talk about this a bit later, but can you give us a brief, brief taste of how, how you do that?
1: For me, the biggest way I do that is through planting with native plants. I think there's nothing more important you can do than planting native plants to your area. So I've got huge pollinator gardens. I've got um, bee boxes, homes for native bees happening. I don't keep honeybees because honeybees are not native to the United States. Uh, so we don't keep honeybees, but I do have boxes for n- nesting native bees. Um, I have composters and I try to reduce waste. We've got a rain barrel. So trying, You know, I always tell people we don't need a really small number of people doing it perfectly. We need everybody doing the best they can. That's going to make the biggest difference in essentially the changing climate and our changing world. We need as many people just doing what they can. And Mm. that's what I try to do every day is what I can.
0: Yeah. And I guess today we're going to be, I guess, teaching people a little bit of what they can do as well. (laughs) Absolutely. And are there any misconceptions about household management that you sort of hear a lot?
1: I think the biggest thing, I don't know if you say this in Australia, but here in the US, we say keeping up with the Joneses. I don't know if that's a phrase you have, but... Keeping up with the Joneses means keeping up appearances and you know, one-upping your neighbors. If your neighbors get a 10-foot pole, you get a 15-foot pole and things like that. And we forget that we should be part of the ecosystem. And we've gotten into this habit of monocultured lawns and ornamentals and things that we think look beautiful. And we tend to call our native plants weeds. We're like, oh, what do you got all those weeds for? I'm like, those are native plants, those aren't weeds. Um, so we've gotten into this sort of mindset of the monocultured lawn, keeping up with the Joneses. We've got our manicured sidewalks and our driveways and and things like that. So I think we need to get away from being better than our neighbors and one-upping our neighbors and having this like perfect looking lawn um, and getting more back into what is realistic for our ecosystem and what is really going to Thrive in the area and what is best for our native environment
0: mm, i find it very funny in australia so we you know in summer we're very hot and dry and all these people have to put have to water their lawns all the time because the grass isn't native it's not really designed yep. it's, it's sorry it didn't evolve for this weather um so we have to use all of this water to keep it alive whereas you know, Australian native plants that people might plant instead uh, would do so much better.
1: It's so funny because I love to garden, but I tell people I'm a lazy gardener. I'm not going out. I'm not watering the plants all the time. I'm not covering them up in the wintertime when it's timeless. If it gets too cold, I'm not going to go cover them up. I'm not dragging them in the house for the winter. It's, it's, When you plant native plants, you're planting things that are meant to be here. They are adapted to your droughts. They're adapted to your wet seasons. They're adapted to the winters. So they're used to that stuff and you don't have to do all that. So my plants come back every single year. I don't have to overwinter them. I don't have to water them even when we're in a drought. And it's just so much easier. It's so much less time consuming. It's so much less resource consuming. Like you said, all that water. I know we go through droughts here as well, where we have to reduce our water use. So not having to water my plants is a huge help. And I know that my plants are going to make it. I'm not going to spend all this money on plants and then lose them over a drought. So that's really nice as well. It saves money. It saves energy. It saves water. It's just really beneficial all around.
0: Mm. And I love that because, yeah, I've, my dad loves gardening, but I'm like, it's too much work. One time he asked me to go water the lawn and I was like, I'm never doing this.
1: <laughs> I'm natural. I've never, the the rain waters my lawn. That's what waters my lawn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what yeah. little lawn I have, but.
0: So I'm loving the idea of having a garden that just looks after itself because it's, it's supposed to be in that area. Um, That sounds like the perfect kind of gardening to me.
1: Yeah, it's so easy and I can just, I keep looking up because my garden is right outside the window, so I keep looking at it for inspiration to talk about it. But it's just so nice to know that, you know, in the springtime, I cut back the old dead stuff and the new stuff just comes right up. I don't have to buy anything else. I don't have to tend to it or do anything. It just comes right back up.
0: Perfect. That's great. So, um, yeah, so we're going to be talking a little bit about, um, you know, gardens and land and everything today, but we want to get some definitions. Um, Sure. So the first thing I'd like to know is like, how do you define soil and land conservation? I
1: really define it in one word as protection. So soil often gets overlooked as an incredibly valuable resource. Soil is not an infinite thing. Soil has to be created over years, either naturally through erosion or we have to make our own. So We can make our own through composting and kind of speed that process up but soil itself needs conserved in general so we need to protect the soil and again planting native plants native plants tend to have deeper roots than your ornamental plants and your grasses so it's naturally going to conserve the soil from erosion so that's another reason to plant native plants is it's going to conserve our soil which is not a unlimited resource Um, and as far as land conservation it's all about protecting our natural resources. We've got some incredible biodiversity and incredible, beautiful landscapes here. And we really need to keep those for not only ourselves, selfishly putting humans first, we want to keep them for ourselves to have beautiful places, but to protect that biodiversity as well. And the incredible amount of insects and plants and fungi and birds and everything that inhabits that space. So really it all just boils down to protecting our resources.
0: Yeah, so you're saying that that's so interesting about how, yeah, native plants have deeper roots. Um, and I've seen that, you know, if you cut down all the trees, then the the hills sort of disintegrate. Um, but what are some other ways that, you know, I guess humans using the soil in a non-sustainable way, what are some other things that can happen to the soil and the land?
1: Yeah. So a lot of it can wash away. If we get a couple really hard rains, then we get landslides. So if we've built on a hillside and we've taken out the trees that are protecting that hillside, a couple good rains here in Pittsburgh and Pittsburgh is known for this problem. We are known for flooding and we're known for landslides because we have a lot of steep hills here. But what happens is you get landslides where all of that soil comes rushing down and people have lost their lives in landslides. So that's a huge, huge issue here in Pittsburgh is the landslides. Uh, So that is, you know, protecting those steep hillsides and leaving as much foliage and vegetation up as you can on a hillside is a great way to prevent soil erosion and prevent, you know, home and loss of life with the landslides as well, because that's a huge issue sometimes Mm -hmm. in certain areas more so than others. But even just in general soil eroding into a waterway can have a huge impact on the life in a waterway so you can cover a stream in a, a layer of sediment that washes into the stream and you're smothering out that whole layer of life along the bottom and that's where your macroinvertebrates are that's where a lot of fish and frogs lay eggs so we're, we're causing a, a disruption in the ecosystem there when that Mud essentially rushes into the water, and it can choke out fish as well. So it's uh, real problematic for the waterways as, as well as for humans.
0: Mm. So, so yeah, obviously having yeah conserv conserving the land and you know making sure we have those things like trees to maintain the hills or the the um, steep cliffs um, is very important. But that seems more like a Government problem. Um, you know, we maybe need to vote for people who will conserve the land. Is there something that, you know, I can do in my own back garden to, to help with this? Absolutely. So land naturally forms the way it
1: forms for reasons. So if you have a backyard and your backyard is sloped or has a hill, the best thing you can do is leave it alone. A lot of people want to grade their yards and remove and flatten their yard to make it easier to mow and easier to play on and have a pool and things like that. But when you flatten your yard or grade your yard, anything away from what it naturally forms, you're going to start to have some issues with flooding and erosion. And I know I had this problem with my own yard when I moved in. My yard had been flattened and been dug for a, a French drain and it was just a huge mess. So we had to kind of put back the soil into its natural location to prevent the flooding. I was having huge flooding issues. So you want to let the land do what it naturally does. So allowing it to form the hills and the slopes. And of course, you can do things if you have a wet spot in your yard. Instead of trying to flatten it or braid it out, you can plant a rain garden there. That's a much better way to prevent some issues in your yard than trying to really just fight nature. You got to work with it.
0: That's so interesting, using something that would maybe for other people um, be, you know, a problem and turning that into an attraction.
1: Absolutely, yeah, there's, I mean, there's so many, you can do rain gardens and a whole rain setup. you can put a pond. So there's a lot of ways to work with nature instead of trying to fight it all the time because you're not gonna
0: win. There's just no way you're not gonna win. It's a whole, that's why we call it the force of nature, right? Mm -hmm. It reminds me of, um, we had quite a big um, rainfall about six months ago. Um, and it flooded, uh, this, uh, everywhere, but there was this one particular race course that had put up a flood resistant wall to stop it, the race course from getting flooded. And what happened was all of the water got to the, um, this, uh, wall and it flooded everything else. And it basically directed yeah. all of the water to all these homes instead of the race course. And it's like, obviously yeah. it's supposed to, the race course is where it was supposed to go.
1: Yeah. It's so like. It's so interesting. I know at Allegheny Land Trust, we protect quite a few spaces. Um, I'm thinking of one in particular, it's called Wingfield Pines. And its history was that it used to be a golf course and a swim club, but it was built right on the floodplain next to a major creek. And none of those businesses survived because it flooded constantly. And you can't have a golf course that's flooded all the time. Like that's just completely ridiculous. So. They bailed on the businesses and kind of let nature take over again. And that's where we stepped in and we put an abandoned mine drainage system in on the site and kind of managed it best for flooding, allowed meadows to grow back. And now we estimate that that space keeps millions of gallons of water out of the homes of people downstream every time we get a major flooding event. And we always get calls all the time. As soon as we have like remnants of hurricanes come through, we... We're close enough to the coast where we do get hurricane remnants and they'll come through and we will get numerous phone calls. Wingfield Pines is flooded. And we're like, we know it's supposed to. <laughs> that's the <laughs> point of it. It's supposed to be flooded. And at some point, you know, it was eight feet underwater. And that's the goal wow. of it. It is supposed to hold that water. All that water was kept out of people's basements downstream. So um, that's something we're really trying to do as well is not only preserve spaces for beauty, but preserve them to protect from some of these issues too
0: yeah fascinating um what are some other misconceptions people have about uh, land conservation i think a lot
1: of people think that we work for a a land conservation group so we are naturally anti-building and anti-jobs you know they they sometimes think that we don't want buildings built anywhere or any new businesses, any new homes, and that's not true. We're not anti-development, we're pro-smart development. We want people building where it makes sense to build. We don't want people building on the steep hillsides and building in the floodplains. That's really what it's about. It's just being smarter with your decision-making. And that's gonna gonna save millions of dollars down the road too. That's not just because of the land use, but that's also economically smart too.
0: Mm, There's no point building a house and then having it get flooded every year because you know you built somewhere where it's going to get flooded all the time
1: right and we have that i mean pittsburgh is surrounded by waterways we are fortunate to have tons of rivers and creeks and tributaries lakes ponds but that also comes with the downside too you have to be smart of where you build around all of that water so absolutely Mm
0: -hmm. so if if you are building a house um and you want to, you know, make sure you're building it in the right area or in the right way. Um, how how can you know that? You know, is there usually a place where you can find this information?
1: Yeah, you're absolutely gonna to wanna to talk to some different engineers. You wanna to talk to environmental engineers. You want to study past events. You wanna look at the news and see where has the news been covering major flooding events? Am I in a floodplain? Has this, you know, an, talk to your insurance company. How much is flood insurance going to cost? If flood insurance is going to cost an arm and a leg, you know you're probably in a flood zone <laughs> because they're going <laughs> to charge you more to protect your home from that. So mm-hmm. the cheaper your insurance is, the less likely you are to ever need it. So there's little you know, little tips and tricks and hints here and there, but you really want to talk to some engineers and you really want to check your county or your local records as well to see historically what has happened there, because that's a great indicator of what's going to happen moving forward.
0: Mm, Okay. And so say, you know, you found a piece of land that is, um, you know, it's not going to get flooded. Um, I guess, you know, you're not too close to bushfires in Australia and other sort of natural events like that. Um, So you found a good area. What's the next step in creating um, a household that is going to work well with the land?
1: Yeah, you wanna make yourself a base map and a base map is gonna look at everything from where your underground utilities are. So you wanna know where those are, you wanna map where they're gonna be. So you want to build your home in a way that's smart based on where your utilities are. You don't wanna have to dig up a ton to add additional utilities or add additional piping. And you're gonna wanna work even with the wind directional, like which way is the wind blowing constantly? You're gonna wanna know that so that you can, Build accordingly window wise and entry wise. (laughs) And plant wise, you don't want all of your plants to blow over one direction all the time, knowing which direction the sun comes up and sets. So you're not roasting in the middle of the day and then freezing at night. So you really want to look at all of those different factors. You want to look at that hill, the grading of your land. You want to look at any natural water. You want to build around trees. You don't want to tear them down because trees provide amazing shade. And that's going to keep your energy bills lower by keeping your house cooler, especially in the summertime. So you really want to work with what you have and not fight it and then try to just build smart, build with the way the wind blows, with the way the wind blows. You know, that sounds kind of cliche, but um, and build with the sunrises and sunsets and just try to be smart about it and that's going to save you money too because the more you have to dig up for utilities or the more you have to heat your home that's going to be a huge cost
0: Mm. the sunlight is free heating is not right exactly (laughs) that is free heat in the winter (laughs) honestly that's what i do i'm like oh there's a sunny day today i'm opening all the windows yeah right you'd have to you know you have to save a
1: couple dollars here and there when you can
0: yeah inflation at the right moment. now is crazy <laughs> yeah same here same here particularly heating
1: yes it is ridiculous so mm-hmm. anytime you can naturally lower that is a great time great for your wallet great for the earth
0: mm-hmm. and so what are some other things you can do with a pre-existing home to you know make it more sustainable yeah
1: so something i did when i moved in was i installed um, a compost bin so here in the US, we are also notorious for food waste. About 35% of our food is wasted um, and it ends up in a landfill. So I try, again, we don't need everyone living off the grid and doing it perfect, but I try to compost when I can. And I compost food scraps and mulch my you know house plants that I inevitably, don't make it in my house get composted and and things like that so trying to reduce waste especially food waste um, is something I've really tried to do a lot and then I can use that in my garden so it's creating soil so it's kind of a whole round system I also installed a rain garden because I had a wet spot so I I put the rain garden in I've also you know I raise and lower the heat accordingly you know my house it's summertime here and We keep the air conditioning at 73 so we're not you know it's comfortable but we're not keeping it at 65 like a lot of people like so um just little things little things that are not daunting and don't feel like they're really hard to do because sometimes when we think of doing things like this and living more sustainably it feels really hard to do and it feels like a really big ask but there's so many little things you can do to really make a big difference so You know, I live in a two-person household, and we make probably one bag of trash a week, which is much lower than the average here in the U.S. So anything you can do to lower is, you know, is going to be excellent.
0: Mm. You've mentioned before a rain garden, and I don't really know what that is. Do you mind explaining that?
1: Yeah, a rain garden is just a garden full of really thirsty plants. (laughs) So (laughs) it is plants that love to have their roots wet. So they are going to be plants that soak up a ton of water and love to grow in a wet, moist space. So that anytime you get that excess water in your space, those plants are just going to take it all up.
0: Okay, that's great. Um, yeah, that and is it's fancy. good to have. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it. It sounds really fancy. Yeah, definitely not. No, just thirsty plants. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Yeah, I I tried to, you know, um, do a few environmental things uh, previously, you know, reduce my, my waste and um, I found it very difficult. So I guess it's just do one thing at a time and see what works for you and what doesn't. Absolutely. And, you know,
1: gosh knows I'm not perfect either. I'm really bad. I love Dunkin' Donuts. I'm really bad at single use plastics. That's something I'm trying to get better at. I can compost all day long, but it's really hard to get rid of the plastic. It's everywhere. So that's something I can certainly improve on too. So we all have areas to improve on and that's not something to get down on yourself. We're all doing our best. Mm -hmm.
0: And so what about, you've mentioned a few things to do with the garden. Um, Are there any other tips um, that you can provide or what about for indoor plants? So for outdoor plants, you really want to.
1: It's this is a, a something I get into is I get really excited to garden in the springtime when after six months of a long hard winter I just want plants and in color and blooming, and I tend to buy plants that bloom really early, and then this was, you know, in my first couple of years of gardening I did this, and then they all bloomed and then I had nothing <laughs> the rest of the season. So you want to be really conscientious of what plants you purchase so that you have something blooming from early spring all the way through the fall. So blooming season for us is generally, we can get some plants blooming as early as March and then blooming through November generally. So it's a pretty long bloom time. So you want to make sure you have something blooming all the time. So be smart about what plants you buy and when they bloom. That's really important for pollinators so that they have something to eat when they first emerge all the way through when they're going to hibernate again. Uh, So that's the tip. Um, Another tip is to follow the, uh, what do they call it? Thriller, filler, spiller. Have you heard of that? No. So thriller are your really tall plants. You want to plant those in the back. And then filler are your mid-level plants. And then spiller are your short to ground cover plants. So you want to have a little bit of everything in your garden. If you plant everything too tall, it's all going to topple over and then it just looks a mess. If you plant everything short, well, that's just not very exciting to look at. You don't have any nice, big, tall blooms. Uh, so get your thriller, your filler, and your spiller. So plant all different levels too. And that's great habitat for native plants, uh, native animals as well. So you're providing a place for them to hide, a place for them to hunt. Uh, so it's important to put those layers in there too
0: interesting i also heard from another guest that i spoke to um dr Travis moore um he came and said that um natural shade um by the plants in the in your garden will actually help to reduce the the temperature of your home is that correct
1: absolutely yeah so anytime you can plant anything around your home that provides shade that's going to cool your house and i know in our summers here We can peak, uh, it was 86 degrees today. So pretty hot. Um, That's about as hot as it gets for us. Rarely does it get up to 100 here, but it can. So anytime you can get anything that naturally provides shade and you don't have to kick your air conditioning on a little higher, it's gonna naturally cool your home.
0: Mm, Great. Um, And what about like, you know, technology? Um, Can you use technology in this you know um responsible use of land it seems i guess counterintuitive oh, in some ways it
1: does you know for the longest time you know i joked that you know i'm 36 but i feel like i'm 96 sometimes because i'm not good at technology or any of that stuff and i fought it for a really long time and then i finally realized that you know you can do both it's okay to do both and they actually work really well together so i'm actually a huge fan of the app i naturalist I use that constantly and you're able to create little projects and track the biodiversity of an area. So I created in my little backyard habitat, you know, I live in suburbia, my backyard, I can throw a rock and hit three neighbors. My yard is like postage stamp size. It's not very big, but I created a project in iNaturalist called Habitats at Home. And it's where I track all of the biodiversity that I found within my home. And it tracks everything from insects, plants, fungi, birds, all of that stuff. And in my little space, I've had over 400 species of all of those different things. And that's fascinating. And that's an, that's just because I took the time when I bought this house six years ago to make the transition to native plants and to a more sustainable lifestyle. So that tech piece has been so rewarding for me to be able to track essentially my progress and track how much life is in this tiny little bit of suburbia. And that is so motivating to keep doing it and keep going and to share that with others. So being able to say, look, my tiny little space has over 400 different things. And that doesn't include anything I planted. If I planted it, I did not count it. So that is just plants that showed up, mushrooms that showed up, birds at my feeder, insects in my garden, over 400. So I love the tech for that piece. I use iNaturalist when I go hiking constantly. Um, It's a free app and it's great at helping you identify and learn things that are all around you in nature. So I'm a huge fan. Um, I use it constantly all the time, but that's my favorite tech piece to use outside in this kind of realm.
0: So, I mean, that sort of brings to mind, I would assume that if you were in the middle of suburbia, everyone's got, you know, lawns and non-native species, um... That, you know, even if you planted, you know, the best native um, wildlife promoting um, environment that, you know, how would the, how would they find you? Um, and obviously they have yeah. found you. Plant it and they will come. It's amazing.
1: And I will say the the movement here has been really, really, really big lately. Since COVID, we've seen a huge increase in the interest of a more sustainable lifestyle. So, we are seeing more native plant nurseries pop up. We're seeing more gardening groups pop up. And especially, you know, locally, my own community has like three different gardening groups focused on native plants. So, the community is growing and it's growing stronger. We also have our local Audubon Society has a backyard habitats program. And the whole point of backyard habitats is to live more sustainably provide food shelter water for wildlife and you can get your yard certified as a backyard habitat and the goal is to get enough people doing that that we can piece them together and create this larger almost mini national park of all these people who have committed to native plants and providing habitat and food and wildlife and it's incredible because you can look at the map and you can see that, yeah, it all connects. Like there's enough people doing this that we have our own little like, Doug Tallamy calls it homegrown national park. Where I don't know if you are big Doug Tallamy fans, but uh, we are huge Doug Tallamy fans here. And he has the whole homegrown national park movement. And we're seeing that really take off lately. And it's it's really, really heartening to see that the movement is gaining momentum.
0: I love that. And I also love the idea of, you know, owning your own piece of national park, even if it's not an actual national park. Um, yeah. And I guess being able to, you know, go and have your coffee out on the, on the porch and see all these cool animals. (laughs) Yeah, it's nice. You can sit, I sit on
1: my porch with my coffee and my crochet and watch the birds and yeah, (laughs) it's a
0: relaxing time. Perfect. Perfect. And what about, um, you know, can what role do community gardens um, play in this in this use? Um, I mean, I imagine community gardens, you know, grow some lettuces, maybe some tomatoes. Can can they also be used in this um, way?
1: Yeah, you'd be amazed. We at Allegheny Land Trust, we are part of a partnering, uh, a large conglomerate of organizations that have formed Trolley, the Three Rivers Agricultural Land Initiative. And it's essentially meant to protect community gardens and protect those community spaces that are providing space for folks who may not have space otherwise to grow a garden, to grow their own food, to learn about these things. And we have an abundance of them here in Pittsburgh. We're very lucky to have a lot of community garden space and we're working to revert more um, abandoned plots to community gardens for communities, especially lower income communities. But they play a massive role because they're essentially these little green oasises. Oasis? Is that a word? Oasises? <laughs> I don't know. In in the middle of the city. So they're creating, hmm. not only are they helping people grow their own food and they're donating food to food banks, but they're also creating little pollinator waste stations in the middle of the city. So it's a tremendously important role. And here in Pittsburgh, we are super fortunate. We are one of the greenest cities in the country. We have an abundance of parks and natural spaces and uh community parks community gardens so we're really really lucky in that regard i know a lot of cities are not that fortunate but it's such an important piece to have that available in cities for not only people but the ecosystem as well
0: it sounds amazing and yeah i love that you know um everyone can get involved not just people who have a home with land because i I live in an apartment I I don't get a garden. Right. It's a privilege to own land. It is absolutely Mm. a privilege to have land to be
1: able to do that on. So to be able to provide it for folks who don't have that is really, really important. And you can garden anywhere. We we teach people to garden in apartments, on balconies. You can you
0: can have your own backyard
1: habitat anywhere.
0: (laughs) I just have to find the right native plants that don't need any work and then I'll be set.
1: Yes. We'll get you we'll put them in pots for
0: you and you'll be set. (laughs) Perfect. Perfect. Was there anything that you wanted to talk about that we've missed so far?
1: I don't, I don't know. I think we covered a lot. These were some great questions.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think of anything else, but I think that was it for me. (laughs) If you think of anything else, we can also discuss it, but I'll move on to the next section. Uh, so we're going to talk about the, uh, practice, uh, debrief now. So this is something that you do to your own life. Uh, so what is something that, uh, what is a practice that you do to manage your land? and your land,ly lo- you. Yeah, for me, it's all about the
1: native plants and planting to be part of the ecosystem. When you plant a garden, you want it to be eaten by insects. That means it's part of the ecosystem. If you're planting things and nothing's touching it, they're not part of the ecosystem. Nothing recognizes your plants as a food source. And you want that as a gardener. You want the insects. Nothing makes me happier than going out in my garden and seeing a perfect little chunk Missing out of a leaf because I know that was a leaf cutter bee. So I know they've been there when I see that perfect little semicircle cut out of a leaf. So you want to see things like that. You want your plants to get eaten. So I love, I check on my garden every day. I go out and I, you know, I don't need to do anything to it, but I go out and I poke around and I look for bugs and I see what's out there. And it's just really, it's relaxing and it's so rewarding to be able to go out and look at your plants, know you're doing something good. I think this year alone already, it's you know, technically still early in our bloom season, but I've probably seen six or eight new species of bugs this year alone in my garden. This is my fifth or sixth year native gardening now. So to, to still be seeing increases is really rewarding as well. Uh, so that's probably my biggest thing. Um, I do have a rain barrel and I try to compost when I can um, and I recycle too. So we, I try to do a little bit of everything try to do my best Mm. in a lot of different aspects of it try to turn off the lights yeah things like that
0: and what happens if um i I think your comment about having bugs eating your plants is a really great sign (laughs) because i feel like it's very it's the opposite to everything i was always taught but how do you know if something how like what happens if there's an invasive species something that's not supposed to be there um like how can you tell and like what do you do about it that's really when you have to know your space. You have to know what's out there. And that's kind of why
1: I go out and check every day because we do have things here that we don't want. We have things like the spotted lanternfly that is an invasive species that causes damage to plants. We have Japanese beetles that are invasive that will eat your, chew up your plants in not a good way um, and ruin your flowers. So it's really all about knowing what should be in your space and really keeping an eye out for what's not native. and. As part of the certified backyard habitat program, I have signed an agreement to no herbicides, no pesticides, nothing like that. So for me, it's important that I go out and check every day because if I see something, I manually remove it. So there's no, I can't go out and just mass spray everything if I see something. So I go out every day and just check that there's no Japanese beetles, that there's no, um, you know, cabbage white moss eating my vegetable gardens and things like that so the better the more you know your space and the more intimately you know your garden and your 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 land the better it's going to be for you
0: interesting okay so it's about I guess educating yourself and knowing Mm -hmm. your space really well yeah know what
1: belongs there and what doesn't knowing that you know and especially knowing when the peak season is for some of those, because Japanese beetles have a very prevalent time where they're always out there. So you better believe numerous times a day during that peak time, I'm out there picking beetles <laughs> off of plants. So it's it's really about knowing yourself what should and shouldn't be there and then keeping an eye on just tending to your space.
0: Okay, interesting. Uh, So we're going to move on to the questions from the audience now. Um, Our first question is, I find landscaping can add up in cost, especially when trying to be sustainable. What are some cost-effective ways to landscape? Yeah,
1: Yeah. using native perennial plants. So native plants tend to be cheaper because they don't have to be imported from an area and they require less care on the greenhouse's end of things. They don't require, uh, if you import a non-native plant, they generally require more water they have to be covered at night or they have to be you know cared for in very specific ways whereas the native plants that are raised in a greenhouse don't so they tend to be cheaper labor-wise and they're not imported so that saves cost as well and then if you buy perennial perennial means something comes back every single year so you want to buy things that are considered perennial so you don't have to buy plants every year if you're planting annuals they only make it a year. That's their entire lifespan. Their entire life cycle is one year. So they are going to need replanted every year. So you want to stick to natives and you want to stick to those perennial plants that are going to come back year after year for you. So you don't have to rebuy anything.
0: Yes, I think buying one sounds very good to me.
1: Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> Then I can uh, buy more so- indoor plants instead. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Um That sounds like that sounds like good finance to me. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so our second question is how can we balance maintaining healthy landscapes with the needs of a growing population? That is a great question.
1: So I think it all goes back to what we talked about earlier about smart development and smart building and we can accommodate for a growing population we just need to make sure that we are building and creating and accommodating those people in places where it makes sense to do so so that we are not you know essentially building in areas that are going to cause more problems down the road because that's just going to cause you know economic issues environmental issues it could cause you know it could be dangerous to human health uh, in that way. So I think we just need to take a step back and be a little bit smarter about where we build and how we're building around those areas as well and how we're maintaining the ecosystem around those areas, because that's also important. So we can have these major large cities. We just need to try to do our best to be ecologically friendly within those cities too. So I think they can absolutely balance.
0: Mm. And I guess one option would be maybe to have more high-rises so that people can live in the high-rises and then maybe go to the parks rather than just having house after house.
1: Right, and even things like making a green roof or providing those high-rises with balconies so that they could put planters out, little things like that. So there's absolutely ways to balance the growing population and our our
0: landscaping and sustainability needs as well. Interesting. Um, And our last audience question, is um, is it possible for a balanced ecosystem to thrive without the need for human interference Um, can we maintain biodiversity without tampering with nature
1: Absolutely. If we let nature go, it will rebalance itself. It's absolutely incredible what taking humans out of the equation can do for a natural space. And we saw this with the pandemic, how many natural spaces and how many areas had animals and plants come back into it when people weren't there anymore. So absolutely. Sometimes I feel like us keeping our fingers out of it is better (laughs) than that the the earth will naturally (laughs) rebalance itself. I mean, the land trust has two Uh, properties that were originally golf courses and the rewilding that's happened there since humans left it alone is just fantastic the the species that have come back there and both of those locations are some of the best birding sites in the area just because we've left it yeah we've let nature run its course and come back
0: okay so once again we are the problem I don't want to say that.
1: <laughs> but we're not currently the best solution. That's what I'll say. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs>
0: so, um our open mic section is where you get to talk about something that you're passionate about and it doesn't necessarily have to be related to our topic today. Um did you have something in mind? Yes, I love bugs. <laughs> I would love to talk about bugs. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm I not surprised, honestly. <laughs> you should have been. <laughs> yeah. So uh, please tell me about bugs.
1: Yeah. So bugs are so underrated and so many people are fearful of bugs and so many people just don't understand the massive importance bugs play in our ecosystem. And people love butterflies but they hate caterpillars and that's mind-blowing me i don't understand that and you know not just not only do caterpillars turn into butterflies but caterpillars are one of the main food sources here in the u.s for birds 95 percent of all birds no matter what they eat as an adult feed their young caterpillars and that's because caterpillars are like the perfect little juicy nuggets of like carbs and proteins and fats and lipids and all that good stuff wrapped into a little soft body so they're super important foxes eat caterpillars as well and not just caterpillars but ticks people hate ticks ticks are a major food source for birds and opossums and raccoons and a wide range of creatures as well so i think that's why i wanted to write my kid's book about bugs and all the cool stuff bugs do because they're so underrated. You know, if we didn't have insects, we our earth would not survive. They're such a key component of the ecosystem of food chains that we just don't appreciate them enough. So I really love them, and I hope other people learn to at least tolerate them. I actually I teach a class um, all about, it's called From Ooh to Aha, Turning Fear of Nature into Curiosity, and i tell people they're not allowed to say "ooh" or that's gross when it comes to a bug they have to take a second step back and say that's interesting so even if they see something and they don't like it or they truly think it's gross they step back that's interesting and that's really important for adults to have that mindset when it comes to being around children because kids learn from us kids naturally love bugs like I've never met a little kid who did not love bugs and I've met a hundred thousand plus children probably in my educational career they all love bugs right it's it's us that ruins it for them it's the big people that ruin it so being conscious of that and and letting kids explore that interest and not like telling them boom now leave that bug alone that's gross you don't want to play with the bug you now there's very few things that are going to co- cause well, at least here in the u.s <laughs> there's very few things going to cause a lot of damage <laughs> so it's okay to let them explore those insects and those bugs and yeah just really instilling that that thought that they are a hugely important piece of our world that
0: we call gross and you know that's not fair to them um I feel called out uh being an australian
1: um you've got a lot of bugs there
0: (laughs) we've got a lot of bugs and i mean i don't it's possibly just because of education like i don't i personally didn't learn a lot about like our our bugs and our wildlife not i mean the bigger wildlife yes but i don't know Mm -hmm. necessarily what's poisonous and what's not poisonous yeah um so i know in melbourne we only have one poisonous spider but so I will kill that spider because I just don't want that spider near me and I don't want it near my pets um but like in other parts of Australia I don't know what's poisonous I don't know what's not poisonous so I just kind of kill everything just in case because I don't want to touch it
1: yeah but see that's the thing though you don't have to kill it you can just step back and say that's interesting and then just walk away and let it do its thing you know like just
0: let it be let it do spider stuff over there outside you know like you well, can do the problem stuff is, inside. <laughs> the problem is when it's inside and my pet is very interested in it. Oh, yeah, you've got a curious pet. Yeah. I, I had to pull my dog away from a red bag once because he was just too interested in it. And yeah, I don't that's a little know, scary. Yeah. But I think it would kill the dog.
1: I don't know much about that spider, but I, I believe probably. Yeah. A I think of, so. Gen- generally, when we consp- consider a spider venomous, it's because it causes harm to mammals so what's really mm. interesting is almost all spiders possess venom there's only like one or two families in the world that don't um we call a spider venomous when it poses a threat to us so most spiders are not going after mammals but the ones that do are the ones that we call venomous that are going to cause danger to us because the protein combination in their venom is meant for mammals aka us so it causes harm to us it's The same way with snakes, we call, you know, quite a few snakes possess venom that we don't call venomous because it doesn't work on mammals. Uh, So that's a little interesting side bit about venom. But um, yeah, I I try to, I've, you know, come across my fair share of venomous things and I just say, know, that's interesting. I, I normally, I'm someone who gets a little overexcited about things, but, you know, I have to be conscientious and be like, step away from that that is not for you like you need to get the far away zoom in picture on that one so uh yeah it's, it's hard when you're a nature nerd and you get excited about things but um uh, yeah i get where you're coming from but you know if they're outside just be respectful that's like, oh, interesting and you'll know, let it do let it do its thing over there um i tend to let things be in the house i have sp- i have a shower spider that hangs out in my shower and yesterday i watched him catch something and it was really fascinating um But much to the dismay of my boyfriend, um, he does not enjoy shower spider like I do. But
0: (laughs) it's like I respect that. My partner has now said that it's okay for maybe one or two daddy long legs in the house. um, So they can catch the other spiders
1: that (laughs) he's scared of. (laughs) Okay. So he's using it. He's
0: weaponizing those for his advantage there. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Uh, Otherwise, he is actually terrified of spiders. And um, (laughs) it's all kill on site, unfortunately. Uh, oh, no. My shirt. <laughs> I'll have to have a talk with him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm. Let him know. Let him know. They're on, they're not so bad. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, if people want to find out more about you and about the Allegheny uh, Land Trust, where can they find you? Yeah. You can go to the website, Allegheny A-L-L-E-G-H-E-N-Y
1: Land trust.org that's where you can find information about allegheny land trust who we are and what we do Um, that's also where you can join some virtual programming of ours so i actually do a free at least one free webinar every single month and they're online so you can join them from anywhere Uh, we've got everything from we're doing moths next week to butterflies october we're doing zombie fungus which is a fungus that infects and takes over the minds of insects uh Totally cool stuff. But yeah, you can go there and see what we're up to. Uh you can find me on Instagram at J-U-L-I-E-T-R-A-V two four. So at Jolie Trav24. Um and I'm also on Twitter at at barefeets B-A-R-E-F-E-E-T-S underscore e-d-u-c.
0: Thank you. And we'll put those links in our show notes so people can find them. And if people want to read your book, where can they find that? Yeah, so my book is
1: available on Amazon. Uh, it's called Super Skills of Backyard Bugs, and it
0: is absolutely available in
1: Australia. So you can check that out on Amazon.
0: <laughs> Great, thank you for that. Um, I'll be I'll be having a look at um, all your free stuff, uh, all your all your things, your website, your book, because uh, it sounds so interesting, and I'd love to learn more. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, And uh, don't forget that this is part one of two episodes about land conservation. So tune in next week when I talk to Casey Markle about uniting homeowners and land trusts through uh, conservation easements. So thank you for joining me today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: You've been listening to On The House, produced by the Household Management Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes like this from across 10 life management perspectives can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, and other podcasting apps available on your smart devices. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel, as it helps other people find it so we can grow and bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website at hm.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Gabriella Gastra, thanks for tuning in.